0: subjects and uh it's just it's just one of those kind of topics that i think a lot of people can say i told you so i think tonight's broadcast we're we're not even we're not going in retro here we're not going to start with if if something like this exists i think the empirical evidence declares that it does exist so we won't have to argue that point anymore it's kind of like ufos we're kind of past the Oh, it might be. Or maybe it's, you know, first you get swamp gas, you know, whatever. I I mean, do you agree with me? We don't need to argue about uh, if tonight?
1: I wish that that were the case. And I'd love to say that it was. But, you know, I've been pursuing this for uh, nearly two decades now. and, And I definitely think that, you know, we're not at that point yet, unfortunately. I think that there's, you know, this this phenomenon certainly exists. I think that's sort of an uncontested fact and that you could say that the phenomenon itself is made up of these two constituent components. So you have this body of claims, you know, testimonial reports, stories, et cetera, and then this body of these physical items or elements, traces that are touted as evidence. And so with, you know, the right amount of uh, background, knowledge, expertise, let's say familiarity with certain relevant disciplines, then the evidence is highly compelling. But I I don't think it has constituted empirical proof other than for the individuals who either encountered it or who documented themselves or collected it, etc. So we're still at this point, you know, this sort of like liminal stage between pre-discovery and discovery. And so, you know, I, I find myself very often always making the caveat when I have these discussions with people to say, well, if these things exist, I do think that. Some of these stories mm-hmm. are true and I do think that some of this evidence was mm-hmm. left by these particular animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, and I used to be a lot more, I guess uh, aggressive about saying like these things are real empirically, etc, et etc. Cetera, et cetera, but I know that that doesn't necessarily always win over uh, an audience who might be sitting on the fence or m- mm-hmm. who might have a genuine interest and they want to learn more and they're willing to contend, with the best evidence collected thus far or the most reliable claims but i think to do so you still have to to be intellectually honest and say well no there is no proof mm-hmm. there's evidence that's very compelling but none of that has yet constituted mm-hmm. objective proof
0: okay all right well you're the guest we'll 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 go down that way cuz I, I i would i would agree there are people although i'm not going to argue that yet the if i'll let you do that part there uh, maybe i'll try to prove to you <laughs> that they exist and we'll, <laughs> we'll have a truce there But
1: uh, Well, you know, I've I've conducted my life as if they exist, you know, with all of my energy and time and resources for 20 years now. So, you know, I'm certainly convinced that, you know, these stories represent, or at least some percentage of the stories represent real observations of real animals. And I'm convinced that some of the evidence really was left by animals fitting the descriptions in the testimonial claims. Mm -hmm. But I certainly, you know, there's no conversation where in which I could prove that. Now, I can bolster my case or at least show that, of the competing hypotheses that this biological reality, like that there's a biological species that's responsible for the Sasquatch or Bigfoot mythology. I can defend that, or at least defend, let's say like the necessity of the pursuit of that. But you know, there is no proof that Sasquatch exists, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're all, we're all engaged yeah. in. That's what we're we're doing and trying to pursue and trying to acquire and present that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, uh more and more reports coming out about this uh, this uh, so-called creature. Um, now, you come from the standpoint of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Now that, uh, that is that sort of suggesting that it is an ape? Well, I, the way that I would frame it is, you
1: know, all of the, the testimonial claims and the best evidence, you know, the most reliable, because obviously you have this huge body of claims. And not all of them are reliable. Within that body of claims, there are some outlandish claims. And then there's a lot of just honest or sincere misidentifications, misinterpretations. So they're not necessarily lies as much as they are uh, people that are sincerely wrong about what it is that they interpreted. So they might have really observed something. Like if someone tells you they saw some, you know, dark animal obscured by brush at dusk 200 yards away and it didn't support us. Well, they're probably not lying, but Mm -hmm. statistically speaking, it probably was not a Sasquatch, right? Mm -hmm. So if you take the most reliable reports, you were to collect those, and then you take the most reliable evidence that's been vetted, let's say just for the sake of this conversation, we can restrict that to, let's say like footprints, hair samples, vocalizations, and then you sort of, sit, look across the set of all that data, and you're looking for consistencies and commonalities of what sort of thing is being described. Well, the, the picture that emerges from all that, from those consistencies and commonalities, well, it's certainly a mammal, because they're large, and they're covered in hair, and the females have obvious breasts, mammary glands, hence mammalia, and they, you know, they don't have claws, they're devoid of tails, they don't have, you know, snouts, muzzles, etc. And so, they seem to be some sort of primate, but they don't have tails, which would make them apes. So it's clear that that type of animal being described and the type of animal that's leaving this evidence, again, if Sasquatches do exist, is of an ape. Now, humans are apes, too. So we all, us, not only the living apes, but fossil apes, you know, we, we existed or exist on a continuum. And so where these things might fall on the, that continuum, we don't know whether they are very closely related to us. Whether they're more closely related to the Asian ape line, which I think is the most parsimonious hypothesis related to Gigantopithecus that you had mentioned earlier, Indopithecus, that lineage, etc. So, with the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, you know they had been around for quite a while. I've been in the group for the last five years, um, but essentially, you know, it's a it's a highly scientific organization with a lot of professional scientists, academics, etc. The words Bigfoot and Sasquatch, although those are the most sort of like popular common modern nomenclature they do carry a lot of baggage and so very often used especially in some of that asian ape lineage literature connected to Gigantopithecus Indopithecus would be these terms like the asian wood ape line because that describes these apes that we know existed were restricted to very dense forests with closed canopies and dense understories and so these seem to to mimic or mirror that sort of lifestyle and so using the nomenclature of wood apes sort of divorces the the scientific pursuit of the group from like the tabloid stigma that comes along with Bigfoot or that comes along with Sasquatch. I still use the word Sasquatch primarily to describe the animals, the phenomenon, et cetera. But Mm -hmm. so, but people do very often ask like, what's different, you know, what's the difference between a Sasquatch and a Bigfoot? in the wood? they're all just, you know, it's, it's like the mountain lion. You have cougar, puma, catamount, mountain lion, they're all describing the Mm -hmm. same animal and
0: so these terms do as well. Mm-hmm. All right, as uh, you may may know that we have uh, the people watching the show are sending in questions through our live chat and speaking of our live chat, a few a uh, few more just logged in here, TJ Tucker, Teflon Coat, uh, Leon Morhan, Louise is back with us, Diana Pete, welcome back. And so is a Southern Boy, uh, Southern Boy in in the, in the uh, live chat. Uh, Azura says, "Matt, do you have, have you ever seen any verifiable video proof?" Well,
1: I'm assuming that that the question means beyond the Patterson Gimlin film, because obviously the Patterson Gimlin film currently stands as the most uh, compelling bit of visual evidence that's ever been released to the public. Now, for years, I've heard stories that people were sitting on better pieces of footage. So I've I've heard these sorts of stories many, many times over the last, you know, 15 Mm -hmm. plus years. Mm -hmm. And a few of those that have eventually gotten uh, released or leaked were total letdowns. They were never nearly as exciting as the versions of the stories that were told in the descriptions. And so I've never seen any visual evidence that has been as compelling or more compelling than mm. the patterson gimlin you know, footage. Uh, um, uh, you know, that famous footage from if no one's familiar, it's the famous footage of, you know, this purportedly female Sasquatch striding across an open sandbar that was filmed in 1967 in Northern California.
0: Mm. You know, this kind of reminds me, and I don't know where you stand on, on the moon thing, but uh, it kind of reminds me that in the 60s, we had the technology to send astronauts up to the moon with air-conditioned backpacks and remote cameras, and um, but now we can't seem to do it. And the, the Gimlin film seems to be the quintessential Sasquatch movie, and all the way up to today, we can't seem to get with our cell phones and all the... the 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 camera equipment we have we can't seem to get one as good as that
1: yeah I mean there's a few different reasons for that so let's say again as a thought experiment if we just accepted that the Patterson film was real for a minute and said okay let's say this footage does represent a real living female Sasquatch well what could have led to that well obviously you have For animals that have very large home ranges and that are very mobile in those home ranges, even if you could identify a home range, and let's say it's as small as like 75 or 100 square miles, which we would assume for a Sasquatch would probably require a bit more space than that, but for the sake of this discussion, let's say that big, those animals are mobile within those home ranges. They're very difficult to predict. I mean, another analogous animal would be like Siberian tigers. A Siberian tiger male will occupy a home range of about 1,500 square kilometers. And they're constantly on the move because they're obligate carnivores. You know, they don't really stay in one place for very long. And so even if you identify the home range, it's like, well, where within that range do you go? And let's say you, you can pick a point and you're hoping that you'll be there when this animal passes through the environment. But there's still some degree of luck because most of us have you know, day jobs and bills and mortgages and commitments. And so we can only be out, you know, three to five days at a time. So there's always an element of luck that people will rely upon. But I think the crucial factor, again, assuming that the Patterson footage is what it purports to be, that drainage, Bluff Creek, it's one of the tributaries of the Klamath River. And so that footage was obtained in 1967. In 1964, there was a massive flood there. And if I recall the conditions correctly, essentially there was a a bit of a unexpected blizzard and a lot of snow fell and then the temperature unexpectedly spiked melting all that snow and creating these massive floods and I've been to the Patterson film site there so when you're driving there and you're you're following the Klamath you can look down you know way down below the road and see the Klamath and then there are these markers above the road where you can see the flood line of 64 it was just so much water so what you're seeing in that you know the Patterson footage or in that I know I think you were showing the uh frame 352 image. It looks like an open sandbar. Well, that was dense forest. I mean, that's a very steep sort of narrow drainage and Canyon there. So when that, those floodings came through, it wiped out all the vegetation along the waterway. That's the only waterway in that big, massive Canyon. So every animal that lived in that area or was occupying that area as part of its home range that wanted to access water, had to leave the security of the tree line to walk across that open area to get to the creek to drink. There was nowhere else to get water that would have been sheltered by cover. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems like that's what it was doing. If you if you read their statements that they you know they gave to local press early on and then subsequent radio interviews that they gave after they obtained that footage, they essentially said when they rounded that bin and they could see it, the description they use is that at that point it stood up sort of indicating that it was squatted down and knelt down and it was right by the creek. And so presumably the thing was down there drinking and wasn't able to hear mm-hmm. their approach because of the sound of rushing water. And so you have that environmental factor too. Whereas in most places you can access water during the heat of the day without ever leaving dense cover because, you know, there's creeks and streams and, 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 feeders and tributaries everywhere and they're all in very, very dense forests. And so in the case of the Patterson film, you have this extra environmental context that something stripped away all of the cover from the water source, restricting every animal to have to expose themselves to to get water there. Mm-hmm. So it's there's a bit of luck. You know, it's but they knew to some degree that they might encounter tracks. I mean that's what they were trying to do, or at least that's what they claimed that they were trying to do. Because tracks had been found in that area going back to the late fifties. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they were prepared. Roger was prepared with the camera. to not only document tracks, but they had had discussions about what to do if they saw something. And so there is this element of luck, too, that they happen to be in this environment that also would have would have basically made this any any animal again, Sasquatches or not anything that wants to drink there has to leave the the cover. And so you it's a perfect storm of these particular these conditions, you know,
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, by the way, let's check check in on the progress of our online poll here. What is Bigfoot? Right now, uh, Matt, it looks like interdimensional being is up at uh, 41.67. North American wood ape is at uh, 33. Skinwalker is at 8.33, and creature left over from the flood also running in at 0.833 or 8.33. And then speaking of skinwalker, uh, there are there have been eyewitness sightings suggesting that at the Skinwalker Ranch that a portal opened and a Sasquatch crawled out of it. Uh, have you heard that?
1: I do remember reading the Colin Killher and George Knapp book years ago, and you know, if, if I recall correctly, and I think they've talked about some of those things subsequently of seeing like some sort of large figure. That you know, they the claim I think was, and I there's one scientist in particular who I think made the claim, but I don't want to be wrong about it. So I'm not going to mention him by name, but one of the scientists claimed that he had seen what appeared to be like some sort of light source open up and that there appeared to be, you know, some other environment behind it and that this humanoid sort of figure climbed out of it. And I think subsequently people tried to associate that with, you know, the Sasquatch thing to some degree. And there's always been some of that, you know, I I understand that there are, commonalities between mysterious phenomena. Like we can all agree, mysterious phenomena exist. We don't know what they are mm-hmm. in every instance, but we know that people observe them and they report observing them. Then they filter those observations through their own personal interpretive schemas that are informed by their own experiences and their culture and spiritual beliefs, education, etc., etc. And so you could look at any one person <clears throat> who has a particular interpretive schema And they'll find a way to fit the Sasquatch Mm -hmm. puzzle piece into that particular puzzle, Mm -hmm. whether that's if they're exploring like an extraterrestrial hypothesis, or if they're exploring sort of like an interdimensional hypothesis, or if they're exploring, uh, you know, a spiritual or ghostly hypothesis, they'll find a way to put that in there. But in my estimation, and based on everything I've seen, again, for 20 years, and interviewing roughly 2000 witnesses and traveling all the all over the country, like I do think they're perfectly normal flesh and blood, biological animals, and I do think that they are apes. These sorts of interpretations, I think it's worth noting, those are sort of like default human interpretations, and especially as much as we like to think that, you know, we're modern people and that we're, uh, you know, we're somehow different than the people of the past. We're not at all. We're exactly the same sorts of creatures. You know, the analogy that I always use is, you know, we're all the same model on the same production line. And so most people have, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some rudimentary understanding, at least, of computational devices. So a a smartphone is a good analog. Like, we're the same model iPhone that they were 10,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. We might run a few different apps, but we had the same build, the same design, the same operating system. So when you look back in time at interpretations of not just ape-like creatures in North America, but other well-known animals like tigers in parts of Asia Uh and then bears in Asia, Eurasia, North America, gorillas in Africa, the same sorts of interpretations are applied to them, that they had these abilities, you know, the language was different back then. The description would be something like they were the mediators between a physical realm and a spiritual realm they had the ability to disappear into a spiritual realm or reappear into the physical realm. But that's just part of, it just goes to show you that there's this continuity of thought of the way that we sort of try to interpret these animals that are very rare, very difficult to encounter, almost entirely unpredictable that we do have these spontaneous contacts with these spontaneous encounters. And then they do seem to sort of vanish into thin air when they disappear. And you could run back to your, your family or, your clan or your tribe, or in today's world, your Bigfoot research organization, you know, just any point in time, whatever your social unit is, and tell those people what it was that you saw and try to take them back to that spot. Well, the thing's not going to be there anymore. And so, of course, it will always seem like they're able to disappear into the next realm and that they somehow know when they're being pursued. And so, because those beliefs accumulate around bears, tigers, gorillas, and yet we now have a very sort of modern understanding of that where we can look at those historical or archaic beliefs with reverence, we should do the same with the Sasquatch. At some point, we should we should extract it from this mythological, basically sarcophagus that we've got it buried in right now to mm. extract the biological animal and see it, and still have reverence for these sort okay. of more metaphysical interpretations. But I don't think mm-hmm. the metaphysical interpretations are describing the actual animal.
0: All right, let's get to another question here. Um, Raul says, Matt, did God create us humans?
1: You know, if, if that would be beyond my pay grade for sure. I mean, I, I obviously come from a background of, of using modern scientific interpretive schemas. Uh, so I can't make any claims about the metaphysical or the supernatural. Uh, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a proponent of of science and the scientific process and of, the fact that science is continually learning and updating and a lot of people might see that as a weakness of science and that's a fair enough criticism but it's also one of the greatest strengths of science that it is constantly learning and having to revise itself and and fight against its old theories all the time Mm -hmm. i think it's frustrating you know you could go to a used bookstore and Find a, a used biology college textbook from 20 years ago and feel like, oh wow, I got this textbook from a major university. 20, well guess what, like 80% of it's probably been revised by now. Uh, Matt, Some bit Matt, of it might be obsolete. Matt,
0: so. Matt, give me a, give me a your best case scenario of a, say, let's say a, a nine foot, a nine foot Sasquatch living in the woods in North America. Give me your best case scenario of how he exists in there without getting caught.
1: Well, it depends on what level of resolution you're looking at. So if you were looking at a specific individual, well, it depends on where that individual lives. If they live in northern Canada or North central Canada, where there are almost no people, you would never expect anyone to observe it or, or to discuss what way they do. But if you pull back and you look at the entire continent and then you pull back in time and look at, let's say, the last 150 years, they're seen frequently. If the claims are to be believed, then they're detected quite frequently so it's all a matter of scale like where you're looking because again we could go to Bluff Creek right now we could probably spend three months in Bluff Creek and not see a Sasquatch hear a Sasquatch find a track but you know if we zoom out in time just at Bluff Creek mm-hmm. and we see that there are decades and decades worth well, of reports well, well, and well, tracks that have been collected there okay. and the Patterson footage and so
0: okay Matt well what I was looking for give me give me your best case scenario uh, uh, he lives in a wood he builds a house he's got a family, he goes hunting. I mean, how? give me an existence chart.
1: Oh, like a description of their lifestyle? Right, correct. Yeah, well, it seems to be that they, again, probably occupy very large home ranges because animals that are, especially large omnivores that have a big body to feed, tend to require a lot of space. So a home range would be defined you know, in biological terms, as the the area required to sustain a particular individual. Okay. And so, animals of that sort tend to be very mobile within those home ranges. And there will be some degree of like seasonal influence that has to do with food availability or or food scarcity during certain times of the year, and then other external pressures. But the the reports sort of indicate a cathemeral lifestyle, and that is periods of activity throughout the 24-hour cycle, both day and night. They seem to be a bit more active at night, though. And so, the way that that sort of gets The way that that's fractionated out initially was by a a fantastic researcher and author, journalist named John Green, who was sort of like the the real luminary of Sasquatch research starting in the late 50s. And so he, in his own lifetime, accumulated nearly 5,000 reports. And so when he broke those down, he found that about half of those happened in the daylight and about half at night. But then he reasoned out, well, there's fewer people out at night. And they can see at a much shorter distance because your vision is so compromised at night. And so to have as many sightings with fewer observers with compromised, you know, uh, visual conditions, that they must be more active at night. So if you imagine an animal that's highly mobile, that is active at night and probably more active at night in places where there's a greater degree of human influence, And that might sound like I'm reaching for a hypothesis there, but we've documented this in other apes. So for example, chimpanzees in areas where their territories or their habitats have been encroached upon by humans, they will adopt a catemoral lifestyle. They will begin start becoming much more active at night and that's strictly to avoid human conflict and human encounters. And so we know that apes have this ability to, to adopt that sort of thing. And then beyond that, I think the most crucial point here, um, one of the there's many reliable observations if we were to look at the set of behaviors that are seen things that would give us insights into the lifestyle of these animals they seem to be ambush predators so they 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 do seem to be on omnivores they've been seen eating a whole host of things but when it comes to prey animals which they have been seen or claim to have been seen Mm -hmm. hunting it's these opportunistic ambushes so if you look at the lifestyles of ambush hunters again the best analog being the tiger specifically like siberian tigers their whole lifestyle is based about uh, based on being undetectable because an animal that relies on prey mm-hmm. for a, a large portion of its diet or nutrition and who knows what sort of portion that would be in an omnivore like a sasquatch but they can't afford to be detected at any time so they have you know hundreds of thousands or if not millions of years of this evolutionary pressure to to avoid detection to avoid to always maintain like a tactical, strategic high ground in order to facilitate ambushes when they arise, Mm. et cetera. So they would just naturally, animals that live that sort of lifestyle are naturally very stealthy. So it's not even always as a response to avoiding humans. So Mm. if you posit an animal with large home ranges, it's active at night, it would be very rare, i.e. in lower population densities with long lifestyles, that lives predominantly as an ambush predator, Mm-hmm. That essentially describes the Sasquatch. That's what you see. That's common across the set of all claims, reliable claims. That's the, mm-hmm. the sort of picture that emerges you, there.
0: You, uh, when you said consumer lifestyle, I was thinking, man, am I going to see one of these down at Walmart? Um, the other thing you mentioned earlier about you talking about an operating system, uh, cell phones, comparing that to humans, and I, and when you said that, I think I, I thought to myself. Well, some people have got some failed operating. They're, they're, they're operating from a failed operating system. All right. Yeah. bunch of questions. Well, Some
1: people run bad apps,
0: right? I mean, <clears throat> right? Some people
1: run apps that, that don't necessarily benefit them or help them. But in terms of like biologically speaking, we're, we're the same sorts of creatures, you know, for the most part, we have the same sorts of nervous systems and the same, and there of course are many individual differences of variation, but generally speaking, you know, it's easy for like a, a good example would be, um, You know there are things that appear to us as as authentic that we experience as phenomena that aren't necessarily exactly the way that we interpret them so the analogy that I always use is the movement of the Sun so you if you were to go outside you know the Sun comes up one side of you and it goes up and above and around you and down the other side and so were you to be born at any other period in time you would say yeah the Sun revolves around me it revolves around us and so we look back at those people and we say Oh, how silly they were. They didn't understand, as we do, that we inhabit a sphere that itself rotates, which itself rotates around the sun. Well, how they couldn't have possibly known that. Mm-hmm. And what they were describing mm-hmm. was experientially authentic. So it's easy for us to look at people in the past as. Yeah. as well, that's, others it, that's if you believe the Earth. But they're the same creatures that's, with the same operating that's system. That's
0: if you believe the Earth is a, is, is a globe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. I'm, I'm fully oh, okay. around it. Okay, okay,
0: it It, 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 it is. It, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. It, yeah, it is. It is. All right. All right. Let's get some more questions coming in for you, Matt Perrette. uh Richard Argon says, uh, "Hello, Matt. Uh, were two were two Bigfoot loaded up on Noah's Ark, or are they nephilim? So I guess he's suggesting that they made it through the flood by uh, jumping on the ark."
1: Well, again, I, I think if you were to look at that through any specific interpretive schema, whether that's through, you know, like a religious system or like a particular, you know, like a literal subscription to any particular religious narrative, you might find a way to put that in there. So again, I, I have no ability or authority to make any sorts of claims about the, the, the divine, the supernatural, the metaphysical, etc. You know, I, again, my, my interpretation is that these are apes that evolved in Asia from the ape line that essentially also mm-hmm. produced the orangutan. Oh. Uh, and so wh- however you want to interpret that, like within your own personal purview, yeah. you know, in a moral or ethical framework <clears throat> is totally up to the individual. But, you know, I can't I can't speak to that particular claim. The
0: Ring of things, those are the ones with big red butts, ain't they?
1: Well, orangutans are covered in, in red hair, and so you might be thinking of baboons, which are, are not apes; they're monkeys. They're they're very large monkeys, but they <laughs> tend to have the very visible red displayed uh, backside there.
0: Nobody nobody wants to see that either. All right, here's a question from Rose: it says Matt, is it possible that Bigfoot isn't just an animal, but paranormal, like demons, or some kind of hybrid created by man? And and I noticed I think in, in the in the poll question we have. Uh, species seven. Now, some people have suggested that the military created them and it was known as species seven. So uh, could it be a a creation or are you going to just stick wholeheartedly with the the evolutionary ape theory?
1: Well, let's look at it from a historical perspective and include uh, some descriptions from other parts of the world. So obviously, you know, what we have in the Americas, specifically North America, is this long tradition and not only representations of these ape-like creatures in indigenous folklore and oral traditions and certain foundational narratives too, like creation stories, but we also have these externalized representations in the the forms of like these Columbia River carved stone heads, the hairy man pictograph in California, various other like artistic depictions, totems, etc. Further back in time that we can look, we move over into Asia in places like Bhutan and other parts of the Himalayas, uh, Nepal, Tibet, etc., you have the representation of, you know, some people still use the term Yeti. In Bhutan specifically, they describe it as the Migoi, and in China they call it the yeirin. it Seems to be exactly the same animal. They roughly the same height, the same build, the same disproportionately long arms, broad shoulders, etc. These reports go back, or at least the representations of these animals, which are always described as being contemporaries of these people, go back like a uh, thousand or two thousand years. I mean, they go into the B.C. and some of the oldest Asian records, the monasteries and uh, these certain descriptions of like the local ecology, etc. And mm-hmm. so I think just the fact that the, this ape line that I think is responsible for the Sasquatch, where that ape line was historically, still produces uh, in our, not only modern day, but across human history, these reports. And so unless you're willing to say that the U.S. military created something that these people were seeing and describing in Bhutan, you know, a 1,000 or 1,500 mm-hmm. years ago. So no, I think the history goes back so much further than genetic manipulation or DNA testing or or any of our sort of like biological experimentation it's, it's much much older phenomenon mm-hmm. than that
0: yeah somebody mentioned uh, sort of the the bi- biblical biblical narrative I think there's a story somebody might correct me of uh, maybe somebody named Nebuchadnezzar who uh, I think he was cursed and he was sent out and he grew long hair and nails now some people say it was the first werewolf others said that was the first Sasquatch, uh, and then there's, of course, the phenomenon in Mexico of, of these. Some people have this hair growth. I'm sure you're aware that they're completely covered with hair.
1: Hypertrichnosis, that, that's a human condition. It's not restricted to any one particular geography. But,
0: okay, but, yeah, but that, it that's, that's does correct. exist. I think it's
1: called hypertrichnosis, trichnosis. Okay. I'd have to Google it to get my some, pronunciation
0: But mindset. if somebody saw someone with that condition, could they be mistaken for a squatch?
1: Well, you would think probably historically so that there would have been some association with, with, uh, you know, because it is, if you look at, I'm trying to find the best way to frame this to kind of combine those two points. So you can imagine that people had this clear delineation across time of the difference between us and animals, even though we were considered part of the animal world, et cetera. But, you know, it's, there's a clear visual difference between humans and and canids and humans and bears and humans and felids and then on and on and on mm-hmm. and so you can imagine how when apes fit into that paradigm you have these animals that are very very manlike and then you have even more manlike animals like let's say the what we think are now extinct hominoids uh, but obviously i think not all of them are extinct i think some of them are still around that even come closer to distinct to, to blurring that distinction between humans and animals that you know, mm-hmm. it, it, you could imagine why that there's these interpretations mm-hmm. that it is so manlike, and so of course, it, since humans have this mutation that occurs that causes this profusion of growth, there certainly probably would have been some interpretation that that was somehow connected to the animal world, mm-hmm. because animals are covered in hair, and by and large we are not. So again, I'm speculating, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I would have to imagine that they would they would somehow frame that within their own interpretive. Framework in the same way that they, you would interpret any phenomena that you observed mm-hmm. within that. Uh,
0: Matt, you er, just a while ago you you were describing the <clears throat> sedentary lifestyle of of a squatch, projecting how it could possibly be, and you mentioned the word ambush its its prey, and I and when you said that it reminded me of uh, missing 411 with David Pilates, how all these people are missing in the national forest. Is it possible that these creatures are ambushing humans and they therefore disappear from the National Forest without a trace.
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to parse out because a lot of those stories are wildly mysterious, you know, and, and very difficult to explain. Um, and so obviously if Sasquatches exist, like any other animal, they probably have the capability or the potential to hurt humans. You know, it's, it's true of every other predator. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about bears or mountain lions or tigers, you know, there are attacks on humans. So it would be ridiculous to say that it's impossible. But on the flip side of that, you think with all of these years of, of stories and of uh, accounts, there's really not that many a- accounts of Sasquatches attempting to do that to a person. So either you'd have to believe that all Sasquatches across time have a 100 percent success rate with every person. Every attempted ambush is a is a success, or you'd expect that there's some portion of humans who who narrowly escaped ambush, and yet we have none. There's no one who's like lived to tell the tale or describe a scenario where in which. Now, very often the the behaviors are frightening because what a lot of people experience are these intimidation displays. You know, the Sasquatches Mm -hmm. are Mm -hmm. making these very powerful loud sounds and vocalizing, screaming, hurling rocks. But when you really dig into all of those reports, they're they're still doing it from a point of concealment, like they're behind large obstructions or remaining behind large boulders, or very often they'll have some kind of natural barrier between the person and them, whether that's a creek or river or some kind of ravine or something like that. So even in those intimidation displays, it's not like they're being directly physically confrontational. They're still maintaining Mm -hmm. some degree of safety. And so is it, is it possible that they could hurt people? Sure. Because I think still, you know, there's Mm -hmm. even outside of collisions, deer still harm, harm a lot of people. I think white tailed deer is the number one human harm animal. And that's just Mm -hmm. because of, of road collisions, you know, them being on the motorways, but I think deer still attack people. So it's certainly I mean, I had a chihuahua for years who attacked me regularly. So to say any animal could never hurt a human would be irresponsible. But, uh, you, you know, I think, I think Politus would tell you too. I just did an event with him last month, uh, or in uh, July rather. I think he would tell you that there's, there's you know, all of those cases. There couldn't possibly be a single, like a unidimensional explanation for all of those. They're so complex that who knows, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm, um,
0: um, now, the solid proof we mentioned in, in the opening, I said not if, but how, when, and where, and you said going to have some if in there. If I get attacked by a, a, a squatch, if one starts to stalk me or ambush me, I'm going to pull forty five out and go ahead and take care of business. Now, um, are you one of the mind to believe that the empirical truth that we need is a, is a dead squatch?
1: A, a specimen is required. A specimen will be necessary, and that's just been made abundantly clear for decades. And, you know, it's uh, a lot of people have a very emotional and visceral reaction to that. And, and rightfully so, to some degree, you know, because there's, there's a set of people that say that, you know, that it's very sad, and it's very ugly that we have to collect a specimen to prove that an animal exists. And there's people that say that it is absolutely necessary to collect a specimen to prove that they exist. Mm -hmm. And both positions are true, paradoxically, like both of those are right. So until such time as the Institute, because the the number one thing that if they do face any danger, it would likely be from habitat loss, because that's the Mm -hmm. danger that we impose on most things, or at least Mm -hmm. habitat fragmentation, etc. You know, I think if these things do exist, I don't think that they are in low numbers. There's no way I could know that. You know, I don't know that they're doing really, really well or, or if they're on their way to extinction. I kind of doubt that they're anywhere close to extinction. I think they probably have a healthy population. But
0: hmm.
1: we can't we can't set up conditions such that we can ensure habitat protection if we don't know that they exist. And we don't know what their habitat requirements are. And as morbid as it sounds, I mean, it would be like if, if you're – If your house was on fire and the firefighter showed up and you said, Hey, please go in there. My dog is in there. I love my dog. I want Mm -hmm. my, and they say, Oh, well, you don't have a dog. Mm -hmm. There's no, according to our records, your dog doesn't exist. There's no need to save this structure. There's nothing inside of it worth saving. And so that could very well be the case for, and it has been Mm -hmm. the case for other animals. And so Mm -hmm in order to have these things recognized, at least for the purposes of habitat protection, a specimen mm. is required. Mm. Now, I think there's a whole host of other reasons that we'd like to have them. I mean, are there selfish reasons? Of course. like you know, And that doesn't have to be from shooting and killing one. It could be from the recovery of a naturally deceased individual. It could be from the recovery of a portion of a deceased individual, whether that's a tooth, a fragment of skull, something of that nature. But, I mean, obviously, to some degree, we 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 are responsible for the land that we occupy mm-hmm. for to a large degree. And so we have this responsibility. But I also think that we have the right to know what we share the landscape with. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, I do think that there's this element of validating all of the witnesses who have staked so much of their own personal lives and reputation and experienced damage from it. Mm-hmm. And then scientists and academics who have pursued it well, at great personal risk,
0: man, you, you, you said we can't protect something that isn't guaranteed to exist. But yet, uh, I think in the upper Northwest, there are actual laws is that is illegal to, to shoot a Sasquatch.
1: So Certainly, but it doesn't protect their habitat. I, well, there's <laughs> there's one county in, in, the, in the Northwest, Skamania County. I lived in Washington for about three years just pursuing the Sasquatch. Um, And uh, yeah, they they put a law on the books that it was basically illegal to shoot a Sasquatch. And that law was entered on April 1st of the year that it was entered. So there's this bit of like an April Fool's thing happening with it. And I think even the lawmakers said basically explicitly it was to discourage people from trying to hunt. And they said basically like they're not making any claim that it does exist, Mm -hmm. but they just couldn't have citizenry hunting something that walks upright on two legs mm. that might be out there because right. that's a pretty dangerous situation for people as we said earlier like people whose operating systems might not be uh, fully updated or they might well, not well, be running the you, proper
0: app i can guarantee you there's some people with their operating systems been hacked because out west they've already arrested 40 or 50 people for setting fires man it's just i don't i don't know why they let these people out um they i don't know i can't stand it when somebody says Fire to a force. All right, um, here's from uh, Leon Mohan. says, Matt, do you think every eyewitness that has an encounter that includes a paranormal event or element to it is mistaken? Do you consider every one of those people mistaken?
1: No, I don't think they're mistaken. But, uh, again, if we're going to talk about, like, interpretive schemas, etc. Uh, you can have a phenomenologically authentic experience, because things appear to our senses, and that's what we define as phenomena. That's literally the definition. It comes from two Greek words, phaning and phanestai, which means to appear or to bring to light. And then, so you observe a phenomenon, and that could be, you know, a biological animal, that can be, again, the movement of the sun, etc., and then you are interpreting that. And and what you're trying to describe is not only the observation, but the imaginative force that you've draped around that observation that you've projected onto it. And so again, if someone tells you the sun revolves around us, and you know that to be objectively false, you also have to admit that it's phenomenologically true. You see the difference between Mm -hmm. those things, because the way that you experience the sun, it does move around you, even though that's, in in objective reality not what's occurring so you can look across a whole host of the human experience that is exactly like that where mm-hmm. we experience something and especially something that's spontaneous and brief and frightening and most especially when it comes to two key categories number one being the unknown we very very rarely encounter the unknown most of our lives as modern people in the western world like our lives are pretty predictable you know unless you're Uh, you know, uh, a combat, uh, either a combat veteran or a law enforcement officer or a firefighter, like most people don't encounter that sort of like real fight or flight, the actual, you know, intense thing that we are selected for. Again, we're all here because our ancestors successfully avoided getting eaten enough that you and I can have this conversation, right? So we have this really robust nervous system and a well-developed fight or flight response that, that generates all these sorts of responses in us, including these fantastic projections these hypotheses so very often people will encounter the unknown and one of the conserved primate responses that you'll see across all primates and including apes like humans is what's called tonic immobility it's freezing It's the freezing response our ancestors were these little rat-sized primates that live mostly in trees and their mm-hmm. primary predators were snakes cats and birds those things very often hunt by motion. And so the individuals that froze in the presence of those things tended to survive that selection pressure and that response gets hardwired. So someone's out in, in a forested environment. They see a Sasquatch, which is there's a, a whole layers and layers of, of let's say meaning that are suddenly like crushing that individual. First of all, you thought you were somewhere that you knew I'm in North America. Let's say we're in Kentucky, right? There's Sasquatch sightings in Kentucky. There's no big apes in Kentucky, so you're walking around in your explored territory where you know everything, boom, the unknown pops up. What is that? Then there's this other layer, which is, it's much larger than you, and it's an animal. And that's the oldest kind of fear that exists for all of us mammals. We were all prey animals at one point in time and not that long ago. And so you have the fear of the unknown, the prey animal. so you freeze. Again, tonic immobility, it's involuntary. There's nothing you can do about that. It's hardwired. It's baked into your DNA. So very often people will say the Sasquatch can paralyze a person with its gaze just by looking at a person. And people will say, I could not move. I couldn't move my limbs. I couldn't shout. I couldn't scream. But again, if you go back and you look at the indigenous stories about tigers, bears, and gorillas, those same powers, those same supernatural attributions were applied to all of those animals. And now we know that those animals can't do that to people. They don't have the ability to generate some unseen force, it's within the human observer. And so when someone tells you like a Sasquatch paralyzed me, it doesn't mean they're lying. It means that they didn't, they've probably never encountered anything mm-hmm. that, that triggered that okay. tonic immobility this, response. Yeah. So they're describing mm-hmm. a, a authentic phenomenological experience, but what they're doing is they're projecting elements of that experience onto the animal. And then right. they're saying the animal can do that. Or they will they'll have a response in such a way that Sends them what they think or perceive as a message. You know, run, get out of here, leave. And they'll say the animal did that. Yeah. And so I think um, when man, people been, describe these elements, it's not that doesn't mean they're lying. Right. It, it means that they uh, the most likely thing is that they really did experience what they say they did, but it was within the human observer and not being generated by the animal.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, when you when you're talking about projection and biases now to some, some extent, you yourself will be applying your biases and projection against somebody's observation. Now, when you talk about projection, oh, when you talk about projection or biases, some people might consider another word that could be used as their truth. And I've heard this program has been going on for since 2004, done thousands of, one of the longest running programs on the net, I would think. But the idea of that, uh, that's your truth. But if it is their truth, but to another person, it is not their truth, then does that mean that truth does not exist at all?
1: No, I think truth does exist, um, because I don't, I'm not, you know, saying that there's no such thing as truth would be like a very postmodern claim, and I, I don't I don't think that's correct. I think there is truth and objective truth, and it takes in a tremendous amount of work to get to that. I mean, I can't even imagine how we ever figured out that we— inhabit a rotating ball that itself rotates around the sun, right? But it's obviously been the work of many minds over many generations and replicated up by these many institutions to arrive at this giant consensus. And so we're trying to do that with all phenomena. And that's, again, there's a cost and a benefit to that because, you know, you take a phenomenon that's meaningful. Let's say um, something like heartbreak. You know, if you ever had your heart broken, it's like, you can't measure that. You can't put it in a jar. You know, you can't, you can't look at it in a lab, but it's as real as anything you'll ever experience, right? I mean, that's, that's phenomenologically real, but I'm sure that there are probably neurobiologists and psychologists who could explain, like, the chemical changes and the biological. The, there's probably these physical mechanisms that would strip away that subjective meaning to say, here is this truth about what's happening in your body biologically when you feel heartbroken. That doesn't mean that the phenomenon itself, the subjective part of it, that's every bit as real, but it is a different kind of real. So, again, I try to differentiate what's phenomenologically true and what's objectively true well, they, because, they, again, they, I think that's a charitable interpretation. If they, someone tells me about an experience they had, even if it doesn't fit into my framework, I'm not going to say, oh, you're lying. There's no such thing as X, they, Y, and Z. Because, again, we, like you said, I, we all – have confirmation bias. There's not a human being alive who's ever lived or who will ever live that is not prone to confirmation bias. We all do that. So we try to recognize it and fight against it. And that's why it takes a consensus. And we have to have dialogues like this to like enough push pull that we mm-hmm. somehow find ourselves in that middle towards the truth. But so I think both things can occur simultaneously that someone mm-hmm. can describe to you an event that was real to them. Mm-hmm that is the product of their projecting sort of like a a fantasy atop it to try to solve it, but somewhere underneath there's an objective truth, and that's what we're trying to get to so we can look at both. And I think both are deserving of equal Uh, attention. And
0: as you're surprised, you you, you were saying uh, how that we determined the earth was spinning. It had to at least start partially about 4,000 years ago where the biblical text says that God sits upon the circle of the earth. How How did they know it was a circle? So I think Truth may have come up through there. All right, so Jade, Jade is our moderator. She says, "Hey Matt, uh, thanks for being on the show. It has been reported that you have claimed if you ever saw a sasquatch, you would kill it. Is that accurate?"
1: No, I've never claimed that. I, 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 now, the organization, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, has stated that, you know, as part of its its mission to validate or verify the existence of the North American sasquatch, that collecting a specimen, if the opportunity were presented in an mm. illegal, moral, and ethical framework, that we would be prepared to take that opportunity. Okay. Um, so I'm certainly not trying to absolve myself of anything, because I, I am trying to facilitate the organization's success. But like, I personally, you know, I sometimes carry a sidearm for protection, and that's not against uh, eight foot tall, thousand pound apes uh but no i don't i don't carry a long gun etc so i there's a lot more dangerous apes out there about
0: six foot tall all right uh from australia Uh, exactly certainly from australia uh ben says uh uh, matt are bigfoot actually escapees from secret research labs specializing in gene splicing is their intellect on par with humans
1: Well, to address that first question, I I think we kind of covered that earlier, but he might not have been watching, the, or that listener, he or she might not have been listening to the live stream at that particular point, but, you know, essentially the history of observations and of uh, representations of animals like this goes back so much farther than our ability to test or study or manipulate DNA or genetics that, I, you know, I think if, if we accepted that hypothesis, it's like, well, then how do you explain all the sightings that happened in the 1800s and the 1700s? Mm -hmm. And then even further back in time, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and is there intellect on par with humans? I mean, that's one of the things we have to figure out. And, you know, intelligence is manifested in in many different ways. So it's really hard to compare the intelligence of two species that are Mm -hmm. both very intelligent. You know, elephants are incredibly intelligent. Dolphins are intelligent. Like I recall, you know, even among the great apes, which are themselves extremely intelligent, you know, the way that it manifests uh, experiments where uh, researchers would would introduce a food item to chimpanzees and then build this sort of like fairly complex wooden puzzle box around it and mm. the chimps would take their time and figure out and eventually figure out how to take apart this puzzle box
0: mm.
1: it was pretty complex and with the orangs the orangs would just take it and smash it into bits and eat the food and it's like well who's really smarter <laughs> of mm. those two you know, so that. that's intelligence manifesting in different ways and mm. so from what we can tell, you know, if you if you become a student of the history of the Sasquatch, you know, there there is a large body of available literature, etc. to familiarize yourself with, they don't seem to use tools beyond very primitive, you know, throwing, throwing projectiles styles. or wielding sticks, etc. They yeah. don't seem to manufacture tools, they don't control fire, they wood, don't
0: have wood knocking.
1: architecture or music or anything of that, that nature. So if they're as intelligent as us, they don't manifest it mm-hmm. the same
0: way. Now, I was listening to a group the other day that said uh, they're Um, they were stalking Sasquatch, and they spotted one, and over time, they realized that if the Sasquatch saw them looking, he would remain behind a tree sort of hidden. They'd just barely get a glimpse. So what they decided to do was have a backward-facing camera, and they said that allowed them to see that he would come out behind a tree when he thought they were looking the other way, which... Indicates a level of intelligence that I see them looking at me. That 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 sounds like a, an intelligence thing. I didn't see the video because they're they're hiding it behind a paywall, so <laughs> I'm not paying. But they that, always are, you know, aren't they though? And so um, yeah. and then you're gonna get a grainy video, right? So and you say, look at this, look at this dark spot right here. Okay, well, I don't want to look at that dark spot. Okay, I'm not gonna pay you to look at that dark spot. You see him out there smoking a cigarette, or leave me alone. But you know, it did, but it did infer a level of intelligence. We're, and that's what we're talking about, whether or not they have intelligence to do things. And when they throw... Well, st- if you've ever
1: watched videos of, of big cats stalking prey, they do the same thing. Like, I just saw a fascinating video recently of a leopard stalking some ungulate, some sort of deer. And uh, it would do the same thing, it was very low and staying within certain grass. And cats will always attack, especially tigers, always attack from downwind. You know, they're hyper-cognizant of the wind. And so you can watch videos of them as they're preparing to ambush. And the second something looks in their direction, they'll just freeze perfectly Mm -hmm. still for extended Mm -hmm. time. And the second that that head looks away, they'll start moving again. So they have that sort of self awareness. And these are cats, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of the things that tigers do borderline on what we would probably call uh, generating abstract thought. And what's fascinating about tigers is those are not innate behaviors. Tigers learn how to hunt from their mothers. So if a mother is poached and the cubs are left alone, they won't make it mm-hmm. because they're not born with these hunting abilities. They have to learn and try them out and practice them. And well, when them. It, when think it, about the abstract thought of like you have to know because tigers have such a – and again, I think this is relevant because here we're talking about a cat, and obviously primates are much more cognitively powerful than, than mm-hmm. cats. Mm-hmm. So tigers have a huge variety of prey. Mm-hmm. All these prey have different lifestyles and they have different – uh, different ways of behaving and different things that they themselves eat on themselves. different places they can be found. And so tigers, their tigers are large, you know, Siberian tigers are like 400 plus pounds. They're very brightly mm-hmm. colored. Mm-hmm. They stink like hell. So they're very pungent and all their prey animals are herd animals. So they they're attacking things that are clumped together in multiples. Mm-hmm. So they have to constantly insert themselves within dozens of pairs of ears and dozens of pairs of eyes and dozens of pairs of nostrils without being detected. And they have to do that all of the time, you know, because prey live by this essentially anywhere but here principle. Mm-hmm. Like I can be anywhere except where the predator is and I'll live. Whereas a predator has to be in the right place at the right time, make the most of the right moment. So if a tiger is capable of all those things, imagine what a large ape would be capable of that has a similar lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I think that perfectly describes the Sasquatch.
0: As we're talking about animals, it came to mind about the, uh, um, the elephant that when an elephant dies they literally have a funeral procession and they've been videotaped with tears in their eyes. The the funeral procession of of and, and they're obvious it it clearly have an emotion there. Is that emotion, is that learned, evolutionary, or designed?
1: Uh, I think there's a case to be made for it being evolutionary. I mean, again, we share so much DNA with so many other things, especially a lot of mammalia, but then obviously, you know, we share a certain amount of DNA with bananas and things of that nature, but, you know, it's it's easy to look and think that humans are the sole bearers of consciousness, you know, the only bearers of this powerful consciousness, but given that... Uh, you know, we we come from this lineage of life, and there's so much continuity across life. I think it's not at all unfathomable to think that mm-hmm. consciousness occurs across many animals, and that mm-hmm. it's difficult to interpret. I mean, there's I don't know how that we could ever understand. There's a a, a famous Oh, I don't remember exactly what his education was, but he essentially was the father of ethology, which is animal behavior, the study of animal behaviors. His name was Jacob von Ukskill. And he, he wrote a book about uh, trying to understand animal behavior. And so he was a uh, an Estonian guy, and he had these concepts of, of like, using the, his language, like the, the umbegung and the umwelt. So the umbegung is like the objective environment that we all occupy, the world, let's say and each of us as different creatures have our own oombagug, which is like our bubble of perception. So let's say like you walk a dog down a city street, like what you might notice would be, you know, like, let's say if you're a big reader, you're gonna notice bookstores. And like, if you're about to cross the street, you're gonna notice whether the sign is, is green or red. You know, if something you, you will pay attention to a siren coming down the road because like, is that an ambulance? Is that a cop like what's going on? Is there, is there trouble around here? What's the deal? what's the dog's world like? Well, the dog doesn't see the sale sign in the bookstore. You know, the dog smells the exhaust coming out of the bottom of a hot dog stand, you know, telling like all of these particles that we can't even detect. And then the dog will detect, you know, the urine of another dog on a mm-hmm. fire hydrant. And so we both occupy the same objective environment. We have two wildly different experiences of it that we can't possibly communicate to each other. And I think that's true of every single animal that we could differentiate between all right, let me you know. uh,
0: let me uh note uh, mention the following people to join us additionally in the live chat gill uh why did automotive frankly my dear killed by bigfoot australian ben put yahweh first believe 3.0 king's Bride and uh hound jog all joining us in the live chat if you have a question for matt Pruitt. Uh, Put it in the live chat or click on the guest question in the menu bar at the top of the Edges website. All right, a secondary question here from Teflon Co. says, Matt, are there any reports of Bigfoot attacking people?
1: The the only report that usually gets touted as a Sasquatch attack was a a report that Theodore Roosevelt received that he wrote about in his book called The Wilderness Hunter. And they don't even explicitly describe it as a Bigfoot, but it's been kind of included in the the Bigfoot or Sasquatch canon of, of information. So, uh, Roosevelt talked about meeting with I think he described him as a grizzled old trapper a guy named Bauman b-a-u-m-a-n so you could just google Roosevelt Bauman story and you, you'll find this online the, mm. the story but essentially these uh, Bauman and his partner were fur trapping in I, what I think is either modern day Montana or Idaho but it's that part of the Intermountain West and um, it's an interesting story so he claims that they had they had found this place that was this perfect sort of uh, little glade, a small meadow with a Creek on one side and these steep forest slopes on either side and that they built this sort of lean to structure for shelter and went out and laid these traps and they'd come back and their structure had been destroyed and, and what the heck, you know, and they rebuilt the thing and came back and at night this thing was skulking around and one of them shot at it. It was like in the doorway of their shelter and the thing took off the slope and they could hear it wailing from the slope all night long. And so they said, we got to get out of here. Uh, no more of this and they decided the next day to split up to collect the traps because they knew they could get all their traps back faster if they split up and so said so they split up and he, Bauman returns to camp and his buddy's been trampled to death and he says, you know, at, at multiple points in the story, he says like they they see these tracks in the camp when the thing was destroying the shelter and they couldn't figure out what they were and then one of them finally figures out like whatever this is walks on two legs, look at it, look at these mm-hmm. tracks, etc. Mm-hmm. And so they never really see the thing that they describe. Uh, But that one often gets... And so the guy finds his partner dead, collects his traps, rides down the mountain, never comes back, and he related the story later in his life to Theodore Roosevelt, who wrote it in that book. So that one usually gets touted, but like me personally, like I said, I've interviewed well over like 2,000 witnesses at this point, and I've never heard a story of a Sasquatch attack. Now, people feel as if they're in danger because just being shouted at, screamed at, vocalized at, having rocks hurled at them or mm. powerful stomps or these loud, intimidating noises. But even again, you know, it's, it's from a distance and the Sasquatch is like behind some obstruction, peeking out as if they're still just these big cowards. Mm. Like they're still not willing to step out. You know, occasionally there are sightings where they do sort of approach people and make themselves visible, but those are rare. And in in any of those that I can think of, none of those involved like an attempted attack or grab or anything of
0: that nature. Okay. Let's get to some more questions. If they are evolutionary apes, why is there not an exponential growth of their population?
1: Well, we don't know that there is or isn't. I mean, honestly, there, there could be, maybe there were fewer of them in the past. And that's true of a host of animals. I mean, there are more ungulates around now than there used to be. There's more bears around. Now, some of that is because of human intervention. You know, we, I grew up in Northeast Georgia in the Southern Appalachians, um, We nearly extirpated bear there in like throughout the 1800s and early 1900s. And so bear had to be like reintroduced. But one of the things that happens as a consequence of logging. So, you know, everything in America pretty much has been logged. When people talk about old growth, what Mm -hmm. they're really talking about is secondary growth. Because there's almost no virgin. There's almost everything's been cut. Secondary growth is a lot richer. It's a more productive forest. It's better forest for animals. And then oftentimes that gets cut and it produces third or tertiary growth. Right. So even in places, uh, for example, in uh, the Varunga Mountains, the first observational field studies of mountain gorillas were carried out by a guy named George Schaller in the uh, 1950s and 1960s. And he found that gorillas preferred secondary forest. So gorillas, mountain gorillas that lived in these nearly inaccessible places would prefer to be in forested habitats where like logging or mining had occurred, and the forest had regrown. And so that sort of helped boost their populations. So the fact that most of America is secondary or tertiary forest now whatever number sasquatches used to be in again like you know obviously we can talk as if they exist I don't have to keep making the if caveat so uh, cuz I am convinced that they do exist but uh, I think like bears like coyotes like deer like turkeys that are much more in abundance now than they ever were because of these human practices mm-hmm. there's no reason to think that sasquatches wouldn't have also had a growth in their population to some degree what we're also seeing is that over time as these forests grow back with the secondary richer forest, more and more people are moving into urban areas and suburban areas Mm -hmm. so there's probably fewer people out in the environments to see them because now you see these population centers Mm -hmm. so it's not like humans are evenly distributed across viable sasquatch habitat Mm -hmm. like most viable sasquatch habitat has nobody in it people living on the periphery of it and it just so happens those are the people who make Sasquatch reports because yeah. they have the sightings. They're the ones that live on, in the right this, place, uh, by and
0: large. On this third generation forest thing, I don't know how many times, Matt, that I've been hiking, and I'm I'm thinking I'm looking for I'm in the forest, but I'm looking for the forest because what I'm looking at is not the forest. It's it's sticks, okay, and and, and skinny trees. I'm thinking. Where's the where's the damn forest? Okay, it's not here. All right, let's get uh, let's get some more questions here. Uh, try to get everybody in here. Uh, on the evolutionary way of looking at it, how would one explain the forming of the dog man that was staring into the window? He's six foot tall and hung like a horse. Now, that goes to sort of uh, the creatures of the night type of thing out there, Matt. Um, do any of these creatures exist? Like the dog man, hat man, chupacabra mothman are are these things all made up or is any a little bit of truth to all of them
1: well you know i don't i don't want to be the guy in a glass house right and saying that uh, other people's cryptid of interest oh that's all hogwash but my cryptid is you know so but i will say you know the dog man is a relatively new point of discussion um you know when i first got involved in the field and involved with other researchers etc like 20 years ago no one was talking there were no witnesses there were nowhere talking about it mostly it came from linda godfrey and her beast of bray road books mm-hmm. uh, and and related to some of those cases and then it seems to have sort of like blossomed out from there um so you know if, if there is some basis in the dogman thing i think that's more likely to be something that's based in, in mm-hmm. a folklore you know, kind of a place you know, because what, 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 it does have these elements that are non-biological whereas the Sasquatch you know is it perfectly conforms to what we would expect there's something in the fossil record that is nearly you know as, as far as we can tell the closest approximation to it versus you know there's no fossil record for bipedal canids mm-hmm. now the fossil records wildly incomplete and we all know that I mean I think the estimate is that somewhere between like one and five percent of all the animals that have ever lived on this planet have their fossils have been recovered most of them will never become fossilized for us to find and of those that do fossilize we haven't found them all and Mm -hmm. so the fossil record is not a catalog of what used to be it's like a little if you had a catalog of what used to be the fossil record is like if you tore off one corner of one page and showed someone so I certainly I, I can't say that I would write something off only because it's not represented in the fossil record. I just think when we're talking about the Sasquatch to a lot of people, it's totally hypothetical Mm -hmm. or to a lot of people. It's this, they say it can't exist. Therefore it doesn't exist. Mm. And so when I can pull from the fossil record gigantopithecus, which is, you know, it for all intents and purposes, nearly a dead ringer and say, actually, look, here's this. And it was contemporaneous with Homo, Homo erectus, and very early Homo sapiens for a million years. They lived side by side in Asia. So our ancestors lived alongside these giant apes in Asia for over a million years. And say, you know, I, I see your—are you familiar with Homo erectus? Yeah. Homo meaning Bubbles. man? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm giving you a grief just, here since you gave me the, the just, bubble. There. Um, <laughs> you got the thought bubble, man. So, but, uh, but, but no, there's a, it's really important to point out that, like, yeah, our our ancestors shared the planet with these sort of things. And so what I'm proposing isn't actually at all impossible. But people have to understand that in order to say that as soon as you realize that the Sasquatch is possible, then it's like you said in the beginning. Once you know it's possible, then you can look at the stories. You can mm-hmm. look at the evidence and go, oh, wow, I see mm-hmm. it now. But mm-hmm. if you a priori have this assumption that it can't exist, therefore it doesn't exist, then nothing anyone will show you could be that so uh, I, I try not to be that way about a, a host of other things but I don't really look into dogman stories you know I don't pursue that mm-hmm. I, I, I think you know, that probably but, has a, a basis in, in regional folklore but I you know I'd love to be proven wrong about that
0: you know the first place I heard about the dog man I was uh, attending a uh, ancient technology conference in Branson and George Knapp uh, who's been heavily involved with skinwalker Ranch told a story are you familiar with that story but where two dogmen appeared at, at skinwalker yeah at skinwalker ranch yeah they said basically the story he the story I think he I knew he, that one yeah the, the story he told basically that uh two tribal police officers were near the ranch and he saw two people that were standing there on the side of the road smoking a cigarette and so he they thought there was two officers there in the car tribal officers and they put the light on him and they turned around and they were men with dog's heads smoke a cigarette and so you know so George knife is saying that and i'm thinking what i would have put a thought bubble right there did he just say that but uh so that was uh the first yeah, time i heard about bizarre. the dog man i hadn't
1: that's a new one to me that's yeah. uh, that's pretty bizarre
0: yeah all right, let's well, Did see. they give
1: him a ticket they were law enforcement officers dog <laughs> uh, men, they, right?
0: they disappeared Ah. They disappeared, and I think just their coats or something. I don't know. If whole. I thought their coats were left or something, but they just vanished. So that goes to kind of the mystery there working at the uh, Bigfoot Ranch there, or the Bigfoot, the, the, the uh, Skimwalk Ranch. All right. Um, Matt, our Bigfoot aliens, and I think we kind of talked about this earlier, That, and there are a lot of people out there that say that Bigfoot sightings and alien UFOs go hand in hand. I'm sure you've come across that. What's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I'm sure that they probably, you know, sightings occur in some of the same places because UFO sightings seem to occur all over the world, and yet Sasquatch sightings don't. You know, the, the sightings of this sort of, of mystery ape, you know, there's there's sorts of, there's various forms of mystery apes that are seen around the world, and it's mostly this like pan-Pacific radiation out of Asia. So in, in basically in China, you have the Ye Ren uh, that extends, I'm trying to do the map backwards so it makes sense for the camera here. Uh, that extends through, like Vietnam, Laos, down through Malaysia with what they call the Orang Mawas, going down into Java, and then over again into uh, Bhutan, the Himalayas, et cetera. They all describe this big, roughly eight and a half foot tall, massive broad shoulders, no neck, disproportionately long arms, slightly shorter legs, uh, for all intents and purposes, what we would call a Sasquatch. But as you move into like Inner Mongolia and parts of Russia and Siberia and over into the Caucasus mountains in Georgia, they have this much more man-like, still hair-covered, but these are like five and a half to six feet tall, slender, built more like humans, much more like primitive humans. Then you go down into the, the tropical environments like Sumatra and Java, they have these small hominids, like these three and a half foot tall uh, bipedal apes. They're very often called, uh, the most common name would be the Orang Pindak. And so yeah. those are essentially, and then in certain parts of the homology, you have this more quadrupedal, like knuckle-walking, mystery ape. So those are your, essentially like the four types, like Ivan Sanderson described in mm-hmm. his book in
0: 1961. Well, you, 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 nearly, you nearly talked about another entity, because there is something out there called Slender Man, you said they were kind of slender, so maybe they're tied into that. Alright, some more questions real quick. Um, to, well, what I was going to say, I
1: guess to answer her, to, to answer the his or her, the listener's question, um, you know, you have these UFO sightings all over the world, but you don't have Sasquatch sightings all over So there's UFO sightings in Hawaii, for example, there's no Sasquatch sightings in Hawaii. So I think Sasquatch is like these perfectly normal animals that occur in environments. UFOs seem to occur nearly everywhere. Okay. But I would no sooner connect the Sasquatch to the UFO than I would connect the UFO to like possums, raccoons, squirrels, anything else that lives in that environment.
0: Okay, Uh, Teflon Co says, Matt, are there any cave paintings or artwork that depict Bigfoot?
1: Yes. And again, that requires some interpretation, but I excitedly, I would say yes. So there was a series of stone heads that were recovered from the Columbia River. That's what forms the the border between Oregon and Washington. And these, these are these large heads that are for all intents and purposes, these ape heads. They have this mosaic of ape features, including Mm -hmm. a sagittal crest. You know, this apes will have and other animals with many apes, uh, Gorillas, for example, and then fossil apes have this ridge of bone that creates a greater surface area for jaw muscles to attach to for animals that have these really powerful chewing muscles. So animals that eat a lot of dense plant food, which Gigantopithecus did. A lot of these other fossil apes like gorillas do. And so there's nothing in North America, you know, in our history that we're aware of that has that sort of feature. And then obviously like these very heavy brow ridges, a slight mid-facial prognathism or which is sort of like a protrusion of the mouth and jaw, these long, wide mouths with no visible lips, no chin. Uh, these are this mosaic of known ape features that indigenous people in the Northwest were carving these reputations you know, thousands of years ago. And so it's funny when you read a lot of the studies about those, There would, we talked about bias earlier. There were zoologists who would look at these things and say, oh, well, this is clearly an ape. This is clearly an anthropoid. Where was it collected? And they'd say, oh, well, Oregon. Oh, well, it couldn't possibly be an ape because they don't have apes there. So maybe these people were trying to depict some other thing. And you see that time and time again. So there's this pictograph in Northern California that a a fantastic archaeologist anthropologist named uh, Kathy Strain, uh, she's written extensively about, uh, it's called the hairy man pictograph, and it depicts, you know, this hair-covered giant, you know, covered in hair with big, massive red eyes and five-fingered hands and five-toed feet with its female mate and, and small male offspring. And, Harry man is said to be like part of the creation of humankind. And so that's part of their foundational, basically like their cosmogonic creation narrative. Then you have multiple totem representations across the Northwest. There's where I grew up in Northeast Georgia, there's an archeological site that has these tracks carved in it that are like these human-like tracks that are juxtaposed against giant human-like tracks. And so, yeah, there's quite a few of these indigenous representations that I think can be reasonably interpreted as representing Sasquatches.
0: Okay. Um, do you think orbs are connected to Sasquatch?
1: I don't think they're connected. Again, I think they do occur in the same environment, and I would love to know what that phenomena is, because that's another one that's seen worldwide. You know, mm-hmm. what people okay. call them like yeah. ghost lights or will o' the wisps or will o' the wisps. There's a whole host of names. I've never seen it myself, but growing up in the southeast, I mean, i have I didn't grow up very far from Brown mountain and the famous Brown mountain lights. Mm -hmm. It's funny. There was an area that I used to spend a lot of time in on the Southeast side of Mount Rainier. When I lived in Washington was doing field research out there. And, uh, so many people would see orbs around there. And, you know, Mount Rainier is a volcano. It's a, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, an active volcano, I guess it's dormant or whatever, but it's, it still could go at Mm -hmm. any time. Right. So there's Mm -hmm. this like geophysical, perhaps like geothermal thing going on. But, funny because i would meet so many people who spent time around there and i was always trying to get sasquatch stories and so i would never come out and say hey did you see a sasquatch you know i would just say oh you ever seen or hear anything weird out here Mm, and all sorts of people from all walks of life would tell me they'd be like there are these lights out here you got to see these lights and so on and on and on Mm. i would meet total strangers back there that you know fishermen hunters just hikers people from like like city folks from seattle who would make their treks out there once a year and they'd be like man there are these lights out here that you wouldn't believe you know so it was crazy so i do think that phenomenon exists and it probably has again some some like geothermal geomagnetic uh source that i haven't i don't understand i don't know why other scientists aren't looking into that it seems like that's something that should be because they always occur in the same kind of places you know it seems like that would be easier to study than sasquatches for sure
0: okay all right matt let's uh let's check the poll results see if you've been able to move the needle uh what is bigfoot all right still at number one an interdimensional being number two is the north american wood ape three a skinwalker uh tied with really the others are basically tied creature left from the flood half monkey half man species seven and Gigantopithecus. so I think you moved the needle a little bit because I believe uh, Mitchell beam was a lot higher than that. All right, let's get to another question. It says, uh, Matt, this is from Azure. Uh, are Bigfoots in the same lineage of the Nephilim or the Seraphim mentioned in the Bible?
1: Well, again, I, I think what people are trying to accomplish very often when they make those connections is they're looking to, like, this established document, and they're looking mm-hmm. for signs of, of what it is that they're pursuing in that document. So as far as I understand it, uh, the descriptions of the Nephilim don't go much beyond the descriptions of that they were giants. It's like the, the person who first wrote about this actually was Ivan Sanderson. He wrote a book, uh, a fantastic book in 1961 called Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life, where he talks about, you know, again, these four types, the Sasquatch type, the ape-like type, the little uh, orang pindeck type, and the more man-like form. And so one of the final chapters he describes in depth, like trying to look through foundational texts for signs of what he called abominable snowmen. And so he he actually found candidates that he thought were more likely that he connected to the story of Jacob and Esau, specifically Esau, and I guess the descendants of Esau. So uh, Sanderson's book in 61 kind of touches on that, but I don't recall exactly why he sort of decoupled the the Nephilim from that particular mm-hmm. descriptor and thought that there was a more A different analog. Because again, you know, if we're looking at foundational texts of people around the world, well, we know that we did coexist with other forms of Mm -hmm. human or near human at multiple times in history, Uh, us and our ancestors uh, co occurred with these things as well. And so you should see remnants of that in these foundational texts, Mm -hmm. because those experiences would get encoded into stories and stories are passed down through generations. And you know, the written word is kind of new. So no one knows how old those stories were, how many generations those stories passed down before they were written. And so there certainly are in multiple foundational texts the world over things that you could sort of interpret as being connected to, let's say, the mystery phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's no way, you know, there's no way to, to verify or validate that. So again, I, I wouldn't know, but I would also mm-hmm. suspect that yeah, there are things that we could find in these ancient texts that might point to some awareness of coexistence that's mm-hmm. interpreted through that particular schema of that time and place mm-hmm. and culture.
0: Yeah. Well, so somebody in the live chat was wanting to know, wanted to know my, my opinion on the matter, and uh, I've been holding back because I didn't want to affect the poll. I want to know what the people think. You know, I, uh, I wanted it unbiased, but my personal view is you're not asking, so I'm going to ask them. I'm, I'm gonna no, let's them. hear it. Here, here, here's mine. I'm going with the uh, interdimensional being, and uh, I also believe that the interdimensional, interdimensional being has uh, chameleon capabilities, that is the ability to blend in with the surroundings like octopus, various bugs, others, so many species salamanders that can literally blend right in to what the, what you're looking at. And I think that when they don't go into the other dimension they came through, they have, they they will uh, like a chameleon sort of like a predator like thing and i've came to that conclusion after i don't know how many you've done a lot more interviews than i have it sounds like for by far with that with this particular subject but over the years i've talked with so many people in this field and the the idea that footprints go so far and stop uh they disappear when there should be another footprint that those kinds of things um the testimonies of uh the predator effect that is moving around the the, the, the optics of an area in a forest is moving around as if there was a creature sort of like, and I, I don't want to get something from a movie, but that type of thing. So that's kind of the camp I'm in right now. Uh, so unless somebody can dissuade me from that, I, that's uh, because I look at what, what could, what to me, my logical mind, scientific brain that I have, wait a minute, I think I can put that brain up there. Uh, yeah, there's my brain right there. Uh, what could address most fully all the observations and reports, none, none, none of, no, no explanation fits all of them, but what, to me, what fits the most that would compensate for everyone's different opinions, and to me, that's what it is.
1: Mm-hmm. And I understand that, I mean, it would be, it certainly would be convenient um, on some level if that, because that would like remove the onus from me Cause, you know, it's very difficult pursuing this as long as I have. And, and I think for Sasquatch researchers in general, because the Sasquatch research really starts in about 1958, roughly speaking. So it's a little over like 60 uh, years old, or is that that's 70 years old, almost 70 years old, it'll be 70 years old in, in seven years from now. Um, I'm, I'm not great at math. And so I had to take my way through that. Um, uh, but so it's been, you know, six plus decades of Bigfoot research, and yet we still haven't, you know, solved this thing. And so it, it is very frustrating at times, and it would be easy. You know, like I'm not a student of the UFO subject, and I don't know a lot about it, but I, I will watch and listen to UFO-related things just sort of like as, as entertainment because it is fascinating. I'm just not going to pursue it like I pursue the Sasquatch thing. But there's no doubt that in certain segments of of that, that space that real cover ups do exist and that there are like there there actually are let's say like, you know, special access programs that people are not allowed to talk about. Right. And so I think that's so convenient if you're a ufo researcher because Mm -hmm. then you could say then you have a legitimate reason to say hey we'll never know Mm -hmm. but from like my perspective which is a biological one i have a lot Mm -hmm. of explaining to do because it's like well hey pruitt why haven't you filmed one why haven't you photographed one and it's like all that failure is on my shoulders Mm -hmm. you know what i mean because i don't have the scapegoat of saying well you know there's it's being kept from me The animal has some ability to elude me that's supernatural, metaphysical, et cetera. And so it it is a challenge, but I I still see it as, you know, I'm able to understand it with the least amount of complexity. And when that complexity, that kind of like low-level scaffolding is no longer sufficient, then maybe I can build on that and say, okay, well, let me reach for something a little bit more mysterious. But I think it still can be reasonably couched in that realm of biology and anthropology, et cetera. And I think most of, of the story of the Sasquatch thus far is not just the success story of the Sasquatch, but a lot of it is the failure of humans, you know, cause we fail in these situations over and over again. And very often like when good efforts have happened in the past, they get botched by human greed. Uh, you know, these human interpersonal conflicts. I mean, the, the history of Sasquatch research is very, and I'm sure it's probably the same with UFOs. I'm sure there were UFO guys, butting heads and trying to like undercut each other. Oh, yeah. and so and, and a lot of that it's like yeah you can blame that on the phenomenon but when humans mess things up so badly it's like kind of our fault too you know. So I understand why people uh, might lean towards uh, an interpretation that sort of like you said it's sort of unifying that way because then you could say okay well you can take the entirety of the phenomenon and and put it under this single rubric and it explains everything. I think for me still like looking at what I find to be like the most reliable, the most credible claims, uh, the most reliable and, and highly detailed, high resolution evidence that still paints this biological mm-hmm. picture for me. Okay. Uh, I haven't encountered that many people that, that made paranormal claims. Mm-hmm. Um, and I interview a lot of people. And again, I always have that charitable interpretation. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you say you experienced it, like I'm not going to say you're lying. Right. You know, we might try right. to figure out together what generated that experience, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to say you didn't have the experience. That's not, mm-hmm. you know, That is not for me to say,
0: you know. Well, I I would question somebody if engaged in a conversation said, "You know, I just saw Elvis, uh, but hey, let me tell you about the Bigfoot I saw." And that person there, I would question. Uh, People do lie. uh, I would question. Yeah, there, there, there are a number of them. But I'm really with you on that. I mean, so many stories, and that's why this this shows covers so many topics because I want to hear everything from everybody. But. People's views—they're, this is like you said earlier—they come from what they see. I don't say that they didn't see what they saw, hear what they heard. They said they got taken up in a UFO. They said they were operated on. You know, they saw a Bigfoot. I don't sit here and say no, you didn't. I wasn't there. I'd have to be there to contradict them. So I'm more relying on, okay, well, give me a plausible story, and then let's see. Does it? makes sense and if it doesn't make sense then other discussions can fill in the blank but I don't I don't I don't dismiss people when it's the same as you and I just want to just compliment you for that by keeping an open mind on experiences
1: well again like one analogy I always use is uh, or sort of like a thought experiment would be let's say that if you took two hypothetical people you know person A and person B and these people have never seen heard of read about gorillas they have no idea that gorillas exist right so you take person A, you put them in the zoo for four hours, broad daylight. And they watch gorillas through glass at like close range for four hours. And they see all the, cause you know, we share so many behaviors with gorillas and that person might come away and say, that is the most manlike animal I have ever seen. What is that? You know, oh my God, I felt so at peace in this kinship and I behaved so much like me. And you know, you take observer B and you drop them off at the Virunga mountains and the sun's going down and they're alone and they're lost and they're bushwhacking through jungle and they can mm-hmm. hear something big and heavy following them, you know? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden a, a silverback male bursts out of the underbrush and you know they have those huge canine fangs, you know, and it's got that mouth wide open, screaming bluff mm-hmm. charges them. The person falls to the ground and the thing's gone. What do you think that person's going to tell you? They're going to say there is nothing manlike about that whatsoever It's a grotesque, awful monster that was going to eat me. And they're both describing exactly the same animal. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of what we see with descriptions of phenomena, even though they appear to be wildly different descriptions, you know, it's like we still have to allow for, like, what was the context, you know? Now, again, if someone grew up, like if a primatologist sees a Sasquatch, they're going to have a totally different language to describe that. Than you know someone in Appalachia in 1880, you know, because we have these old historical reports of people seeing them in North Georgia and Western North Carolina. Well, they didn't. That was prior to even the discovery of the mountain gorilla, so they didn't have the same language and the same conceptual understanding of apes. You know, it's things a monster, you know, or it's a, a mountain devil, or you know these these older terms. But again, they're describing the same thing. And even though you can say, well, this person says it's the most manlike animal ever. And this person says, uh, it's grotesque and monstrous, which one of them is lying? And it's like, neither mm-hmm. of them. They're both telling the truth. Even mm-hmm. though they don't seem to be compatible, they are. And so we yeah. have to keep that in mind. Like, mm-hmm. and that, so I appreciate that, that you have that open mind too, of like hearing people out and trying to, to understand, again, separate what they observed from their interpretation. Mm-hmm.
0: You yeah, know, exactly. But, uh, putting the Bigfoot question aside, uh, do you believe that the paranormal does exist?
1: Well, as phenomena, sure. I just don't know what the causes of them are. You know, uh, like, we, again, with, with UFOs, it's so fascinating that, like, obviously there's these different levels of observations, right? So people, there's no doubt people see lights in the sky. And then you could have five observers in a line who all see lights in the sky. The first guy says, you know, oh, that's our military craft. Mm-hmm. And someone says, no, 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 that's our secret military craft. And then the third guy goes, no, 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 no that's foreign military craft. You know, we're under, this is dangerous, this is impending doom, and then the other person says, no, 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 that's just celestial activity, that's a mm-hmm. planet being refracted through. and then the other person says, oh, that's extraterrestrial craft being piloted by intelligent life, who are driving that thing, and it's like, well, those are all interpretations, they still saw something, you know, mm-hmm. then you have much more interesting stories like crash retrievals, and these other sorts of things, where it's like, that makes me perk up a whole lot more than lights in the sky, so when people talk about, Whatever we might call paranormal Like let's just say for the sake of this discussion Like Bigfoot, ghosts, UFOs It's maybe the big three I think there's commonalities Like they all have a long history There are lots and lots of witnesses Of each of those phenomena Those are all again like from a bird's eye view They seem to be kind of ubiquitous Like you can look again at North America Over the last 200 years And see Sasquatch sightings everywhere You know but you zoom in on any one place Again like we could go to Bluff Creek next week and we might not see or hear anything. Uh, it's the same with like, you see ghost stories occurring everywhere Well, you could pick any one of those spots and spend a week in there and you might not experience anything that is similar to what other people claim or this history of UFO sightings. It's not like you can see them on demand. So from one perspective, they have a long history and they're ubiquitous, but all those, when you zoom in on them, they're incredibly unpredictable. They're almost impossible to Subdue or capture, mm-hmm. and they're almost impossible to pursue. You can't like run after them and chase them yeah. down, any of those things, right? Yeah, and so, those three phenomena share those things in common. Mm-hmm. And so, I do think when I look at the Sasquatch thing, I think there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for this. I think this is a real thing. Of course, I think you know, there's some real thing at the bottom of the UFO phenomena, there's some real thing at the bottom of the ghost phenomena. I just don't pursue those enough mm-hmm. to, I don't know much about them but i certainly wouldn't sit here and say that they're not real that they don't mm-hmm. exist you know yeah, all and these whether they're uh, phenomenologically real like who knows
0: all those esoteric subjects are it's sort of not scientific in it they're not they're not repeatable I, you can't repeat a ghost sighting or can't say well i saw a sasquatch over here so let's go look and see and he's not there so this it's just arbitrary it seems like so it's, it remains elusive but the hunt is uh, something worth doing, and I think we all should pursue the hunt. And, of course, the hunt for Sasquatch is really the hunt for truth. What is out there? What 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 is this world? What does it really contain? Matt Pruitt, we're at the end of the broadcast. Any final thoughts about... Uh Uh, uh, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy or yourself how people follow your work Uh, oh certainly yeah
1: if you want to hear more about uh, our work we have a podcast called Apes Among Us you can find that on all podcast platforms I would definitely encourage people to to listen to that if you enjoy listening to these sort of like uh, spoken dialogue conversations about the subject you can read through the website at woodape.org and uh, my website, I'm at uh, mattpruittonline.com, and there's a contact form there if you have any other questions. But, I, you know, I love the subject. I love the pursuit of it and these discussions. So I just appreciate the invitation and getting to, to speak with you and, and your audience as well.
0: All right. We'll send you links after the editing is done and post it up on YouTube and rumble wherever we put it. And Matt Pruitt, I appreciate you coming on the program. Can we have you on again sometime?
1: Certainly. it would be a lot of fun.
0: All right, man. I appreciate you. and have, have a good evening and stay safe.
1: Thank you. You as well, Daniel. You bet.